Marion Faithful there, Intrigue. I am delighted to have Debbie Brennan in the studio from Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party to talk about their Stonewall event, uh, TERFs, Nazis and the Fight for Trans Liberation. Debbie, welcome to the show. Well, it's wonderful to be here. It's like something out of a dystopian novel, isn't it? That title. Uh, I mean, you've been a, a feminist activist for decades. Did you ever think we'd be in this position? You know, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, frankly, as long as we're living in a system that's oppressive and especially transphobic, homophobic, misogynist, until we have that revolution, we're going to be facing this stuff. And uh, with the re-emerging far-right globally, I guess it's not a surprise. But what is also not a surprise is the just the, the, the resistance coming from the transqueer community against this, just taking no shit, basically. Absolutely. And it very much is about resistance and, and, and fighting back in a constructive way. Yes. And we're lucky we're living in a state where, you know, the government is supportive of trans rights. But I mean, as your colleague Alison Thorne says, what we win can easily be taken away and it only takes a right wing government to lose it all, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. And the other thing, too, is, um, yes, it's good to have government supporting um, rights, in this case, trans rights. But there's a difference between just supporting rights and actually um, having those rights acted out concretely in people's lives. And, of course, we know that this kind of economy or economic system, which is which is sexist. And if you're sexist, you're also transphobic and homophobic. Um, when you've got that kind of system still very much in place, and especially in crisis trying to save itself, then its claws come out. So um, unless we have a different kind of a society with a totally different basis for running, then these threats are always going to keep re-emerging. It very much is the case, isn't it, that the rise of the far right is linked to our economic structures and and conditions. Uh, that's what takes yes. for, for fascism to thrive, unfortunately, um, when capitalism's on the nose in a, in a way that's hurting the middle class. One thing that... Um, uh, I'll be talking about in our event, um, which I can say more about, but one point I'll be making related to what you were just saying is that um, the capitalist system needs, you know, women in the home doing that reproductive labor. And to have that kind of thing going, um, it's got to have a very strict binary. And when you've got that straitjacket basically set in place, then you're talking about no place whatsoever um, for trans and queer people and non-binary people. It's actually a system that straitjackets people. So um, again, as long as we've got that, we will win reforms. We'll keep fighting for those reforms. We'll keep um, resisting any um, pushbacks from the system against our rights, but nothing's set in concrete until we actually change the system. So that system, do you think, is, is threatened by trans rights and, and trans people because it goes beyond that binary? Is that, is that how you feel? Can you say that again? Sorry. Yeah. Do you think that um? Do you think that the the capitalist system is threatened by the emergence of trans rights and uh, the the visualization and the emergence of more trans people coming out because it threatens that binary? Um, you're that. That's exactly what the situation is. In fact, the capitalist system is threatened by 
any challenge to that binary, it's threatened by women's independence, very threatened it was in the 60s when the women's movement, and then of course later the LGBTIQA plus movement emerged. Anything that threatens that, um, that essential social unit for capitalism, which is the nuclear family ruled by the father, Anything that threatens that is a threat to the system. So we're all together, whether we be cis or trans, queer or straight, if we're, if we're you know, women or non-binary or not cis, we are, just by who we are, a threat to the system. You've been an activist for, for decades. Um, have you ever seen a time like this in terms of uh, queer activism? Um, yes, I, I wasn't uh, in this. I can't go back to the 60s because I was not quite an activist back then. It was a bit early in the piece. But since that time, um, I do remember episodes uh, like in the um, in the eighties, actually, yes, the eighties, when I was living in Sydney at the time, and there was a a big battle. Um, it was soon after uh, the nineteen seventy eight, you know, Pride March, and the state came down heavy on the seventy eighters at the time, and it was soon after that, and around that time, that there was also. Um, you know, a, a, a big fight around um, about generally gay rights and, you know, all together. And so I do remember being on those, uh, you know, out in the streets uh, at that time. And it was, and of course, there was the whole thing about um, around AIDS. So yes, there have been, there have been moments in history. And I would say that, um, okay, now is pretty intense, but it was pretty intense back then as well. What's your response to so-called feminists uh, finding themselves in a position where they're being supported by by neo-Nazis? Mm. Um, they seem to be in denial about that. What are your thoughts? It's... I'm not surprised that it's come to this because um, the the trans exclusionary radical feminists, the TERFs, um, they're they're coming. Their whole um, the basis of their belief is number one that the that men are the enemy, not the system, but men are women's enemy. But alongside that. They are biological determinists. So basically, they believe that your body parts determine your gender. When you put those two things together, then you are going to find that um, uh, that horrible, intense transphobia. And when you're caught up in that transphobia, based on that that very, uh, what can I say, very... Um, disconnected way of thinking, uh, then, yes, the far right, have, the likes of Posey Parker, for example, would actually see the prospect of being able to attract TERFs into the far right movement and stand alongside Nazis, as is what happened. It's so ironic, though, isn't it, that, you know, you've got these turf groups who are actually, you know, like Posey Parker was funded by, you know, groups mm -hmm. that are controlled by men. I understand CPAC mm -hmm. put some money yes. into that trip and also Binary Australia. Yes. The organisations, you know, run by men. It's quite ironic, isn't it? Well, I... I see a consistency there because, frankly, I think that the likes of Posey Parker, look, she poses as a feminist. She's not a feminist. You know, her whole, her whole line is all about, um, you know, women needing to stand up for themselves as women, et cetera, et cetera. But there is nothing feminist about that whatsoever. There is nothing feminist about being transphobic whatsoever. And so I don't really see her... Well, she's not a feminist, so it's no surprise to me that a far right, which is very, 
very male-dominated, but there are um, anti-feminist women like Posey Parker in that movement, uh, that it, it all looks pretty consistent to me. And she, was, she really just acts as a, um, a feminist masquerade for that movement. Looking into your crystal ball, how do you see this situation with, with TERFs, Nazis, you know, attacking trans rights and governments around the world, kind of, you know, embracing it, you know, overtly or, or, or tacitly? Um, where do you see the situation ending up? Well, I think that um, it's not hard to look in that crystal ball right now because we are seeing, again, the resistance against that. And it was very inspiring to be part of the Trans Day of Visibility rally, which was just two weeks after that Posey Parker spectacle. Um, and it was like it was like in your face to be using, I guess, a pun um, that it was like no nonsense. And that was the trans and queer answer to the likes of that kind of threat coming, you know, at the community. And so when you see that, um, which again was just so inspiring to be a part of, and um, you're part of the energy of that. um, And then you see the same community standing up to the threats against local councils and other organizations that would cancel, you know, queer and um, story time events, then I think that what we're seeing is a, um, a very strong, uh, promising uh, fight back. And so if we were to look at a crystal ball, Um, What I can see is the huge potential for that even expanding so that we um, can draw the links between the attacks on the trans and queer community now and the attacks on um, the migrant community, First Nations, people with disability, the left, unions, and so on, which is exactly what the far right and fascism are about. When those links are being made, then... That crystal ball is showing me what what we would call in Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party a united front, all fronts coming together, all fronts under attack, whether we're under attack today or under attack tomorrow, coming together, and there's no stopping us. We would we would have we would defeat them just just like that. Because they are a very small number of people. It has been wonderful to see the Rainbow Community Angels attending those events because councils have kind of, you know, balked at the knees a bit by cancelling drag story time. It's not the approach. It emboldens it emboldens the opposition, doesn't it? It's just what you don't do. You you don't cancel things. It's it, You just said it. You're emboldening the fascists. You're emboldening the, emboldening the far right. You are basically saying to the state authorities that, oh, we'll do whatever you say, when in fact, as far as the state authorities are concerned, they see the likes of us, and when I say us, I mean us in the streets who are defending our rights and each other's rights. They're seeing us as the threat. They don't see the fascists and the far right as the threat. And any of us who have been facing off Nazis in the past, we know that for a fact, that the police are, um, you know, throwing their pepper spray at us. They're not throwing it at the fascists. Tell us about your event to mark the anniversary of Stonewall. It's happening on the 28th of June. And yeah, it's called Turfs, Nazis and the Fight for Trans Liberation. Well, the 28th of June, this next Wednesday, is actually the 54th anniversary of the Great Stonewall Rebellion in Greenwich Square of New York City. And um, so we are holding this event to honor uh, Stonewall. We will be paying a tribute to Stonewall. And speaking of what we were just talking about before, that was, you know, trans people of color, butch dykes, 
and um, the whole range of, of the queer community standing up and saying, we're not going to take one any more police raids. We've had enough. And they um, rebelled. And of course, we have an LGBTIQA movement um, still today. We are paying tribute to that, but we are having, we're very excited to have as one of our speakers, Austin Fabry Jenkins, who was a chief organizer of the uh, Trans Day of Visibility um, Rally. He's also a unionist, and I know that he's been working very hard on those defenses of the story times where unionists have been coming out in force as well, which is a very important thing. So we're very excited to have Austin there to be talking um, from from his experience and perspective, and I'll be speaking um, for Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party, but we really want to hand over a lot of time for discussion. So we're really, really keen for people to be saying what they think um, is needed and how we can be building that united resistance that we really do need to build if we're going to out-organize and defeat the far right. If people want information, if they're thinking about going along next Wednesday at 7 o'clock the 28th, where do they go to get information, for example, about the venue? Yes, okay. Um, I should say it is online so that uh, I think the simplest thing just to say uh, is that they should go to socialism.com. That's probably the easiest thing to remember. Go to that Facebook page to Melbourne. That's the Freedom Socialist Party's website, and they will get the details there. They will get the link to, to register, so please register. Or they could go to the Facebooks of Freedom Socialist Party Australia or the Facebook of Radical Women Australia. All that information is there. Debbie Brennan, it is a joy to meet you finally and have you here at 3CR again. You're a huge supporter of the station. Thank you so much for coming in on In Your Face. It's a joy to be here. Thanks a lot, James.
gold frap there in electric blue. And here's Mr. Co. Mr. Co there, don't talk about it. And here they are in the studio, Connor and Oscar. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you for you having man. us Thank again. You. Yeah, again. It's been good to be back. It is so good to see you guys. And that track, that's a musical departure for you. I, yeah. I, I feel 90s boy band. <laughs> Silver chair almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a bit of a change. Bit of a, a rock direction for this mm. one. Um, mm-hmm. Look, I, I've got a bit of inf- like heavy rock influences. So for me, it felt... Like going back home for Natural. a little bit. Um, and that's the best thing about the songs that we're going to be releasing is you kind of really get a sense of both of our influences and who stands alone in those genres. So mm. this one was kind of my baby, you know? Yeah. Bit of rock. Love a bit of rock. It was it was fun. I, I really enjoyed getting into it. Like, I, like my background isn't really rock, but I, I love rock music and obviously I love Connor. So it was just <laughs> a, it was a perfect little sort of middle ground for us to sort of work on and develop this sort of sound which is great yeah 
Your vocals are very strong on the track. You can tell that you loved recording it. Yeah, mm. it was... Um, to be to be honest, out of all the ones that we've released so far and the ones that we're currently working on, it was the quickest vocal recording because I think we knew what we wanted. We knew what we wanted to say. And the vocal takes with rock, I find, because it's so unapologetic, you have to just lay it all out. And mm. typically that's what gets you that real good rock sound. And combining both of our voices just to make it a bit more anthem rather than just a solo rock song um, really, really helped. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was like Connor said. It was, it was, it was quick to quick. We were quick to get the vocals down for this one. But like Connor said, like we knew what we wanted to say and how we wanted to say it. It was just about capturing that performance and and really putting it all yeah. on the line, which is how we. I think. And the, I think the, it, it was in our archive for about. We yeah. started actually writing this song at the start of twenty. End of 2019. Yeah, we moved into Royal Crescent. Yeah, yeah and yeah. we just pulled it out one night at home and we listened to it again and we went, all right, yep, okay, I reckon we could do this. I went downstairs and I reckon I wrote the lyrics for that song within 30 minutes. Mm. It was pretty easy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Why did you put it away in the first place? I think with all musicians, I think when you're working on, say, an album, which we are now... You get inspiration, and then when the inspiration dries up, what we do is we leave it. We don't try to make, we don't try to force ourselves to turn something into something. We would prefer to wait, sit, and then later on reflect through all the pieces. Mm. Like we've probably got. 30, 40 yeah. pieces of work. Yeah, I th- and like to, to Connor's point about like leaving it, I think that it, it refreshes your mind. If you sit there and work on something for, you know, hours and days and even weeks, it starts that you start hearing the same thing and you can't get that out of your head. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just not listen to it, like kind of, you know, let your ears have a rest and then come back to it, you hear new things, you hear new sounds, you hear new tones and you can sort of manufacture something new out of that even though and, it's and we had to like because all the other songs we wrote like tonight make you feel right and a few more that we're releasing is so love and positive based <laughs> that's ideally our relationship 90 percent of the time so yeah. we really for this song wanted to wait wait until we've had a bad week because <laughs> you need you need to be in that headspace that rebellion that you know i've had enough i'm done i'm over it and i think with this song we needed to be in that headspace for it to really Transcend across. There's a bit of an angsty sex vibe to it, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there is. I love that. That's um, good. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think on reflection on what what it really means about. So, Oscar, as usual, as talented as he is, he's he did like ninety percent of the guitar work. He did all the music production arrangement for this one, and I was left to do all the melody and lyrics. So this one was a pure 50-50 split of us doing our own thing. I'll also mention Dom from um, Protonaut Studios helped us out massively yeah, with that oh, as well. Yeah, his guitar solo in that um, after that, Absolute. before the breakdown, was so good. Legend. And being a German producer, obviously in Germany, alt-rock and that heavy rock sound is... He nailed it. Yeah. He just absolutely nailed Killed it. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the song for us, it... It really, see, I think the main, the center point of what it really means is our coming out, you know, coming out together because mm-hmm. we, you know, we were lucky enough to come out together in our relationship to see through that massive change. And we had support. We had great support. Like we were very lucky, very blessed to have so many people around us supporting us through coming out together and mm. celebrating the love that we had. But I think anyone going through that process has fear. You know, we have fear of uh, rejection, fear of denial, fear of people not seeing it seeing or us believing through it. it. And, yeah. You know, and I think that was where this song really Stemmed came from. in because I guess our attitude towards the end of it, well, if you're not going to like it, then <laughs> don't talk, don't about, talk it. about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that kind of segues into smashing through the pink ceiling a little bit. Do you feel like you've kind of, you know, smashed through the stereotype of the gay married couple with this track and and because it is angsty, because it has got that kind of, you know, hetero boy band sound, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The, the industry is kind of treating you in a different way because of this track and they're finding it harder to pigeonhole you. What are your thoughts on that, Oscar? Um, yeah, look, I would definitely say so. I, I 100% because I do believe there is probably a little bit of a pink ceiling there. And especially from the previous tracks that we've done, this is such a divergence from what we've what we've usually done. Um, so I do think that this has opened us up a little bit more and people are, I think people are looking at us a little bit differently. And like we've seen the reception 100% come, come a lot more from this track, which is great. Um, but I also think that it, it sort of, relates as well to 
not only people who are in, you know, gay relationships, but any sort of relationship or going through any transition in their life. Mm-hmm. It's about learning to stand on your own two feet and know that, that you're going to be good because you're going to make yourself good. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, a really important lesson that I learned going through the process that we did when we came out. And, you know, I'm like kind of said, we were really blessed to have support, but there is a little bit of part, like a little part of you that goes, is everything going to fall apart? And knowing that you can hold your own really helps you through those moments. And that's, I think, where there's... Yeah, and where and the time from. times have changed and the community's also grown into something so wonderful now, right? When we're in high school, you know, mm-hmm. probably still young to a lot of people, but we were 2013, 2012, and high school was rough. It was rough for the LGBTQ community. It was um, still at that point of people not understanding how the community works and what the community is. Now it's amazing. Like when you have a look at the younger generation coming through school now, the, the support in the school system oh, is so great. It's phenomenal, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was rough. It was hard. But I think what we made out of it was we were honest, transparent, and we're still being honest and transparent. So yeah. even though we're pitching this song to some pretty, you know, straight, narrow, rock <laughs> <laughs> communities... On our media release, we're very transparent. We are who we are. We, we love our relationship. We yeah. love being a part of the queer community as well. Um, and I would say that it's probably opened some people's eyes up that there are some queer artists out there that can rock, yeah, you know, that 100%. can do rock music yeah. and still have that Gusto, you know, drive. That, yeah, drive yeah. about it. Yeah, 100%. But I do I, I do agree with you in the, the shattering the pink ceiling type of thing. I, I get that. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it, that we're in 2023 and the mainstream music industry still hasn't figured out that queers rock. <laughs> you know, and oh, they're true. learning. They're, they're learning. learning. They'll learn quick. They'll learn quick, man. They'll learn quick. Yeah. But mainstream radio in particular, kind of, you know, is still very kind of um, homophobic. Yeah, there's, there's definitely elements of... Look, I, I think it's, you can't disregard that we've come, we've come... We're probably not where we should be. But we've definitely come a little bit further than what was. But I think that by independent artists like us, we're, you know, we're not tied to a label. We don't have any promoter pushing us through. We're doing a lot of the groundwork for us. And a lot of independent artists in the queer community are going leaps and bounds to demand being heard, you mm-hmm. know, demand being heard, demand to be respected. And at the end of the day, when it comes to music, it's the music that matters. It's the music that tells the stories and no one should be muted from being able to tell their story no matter what walk of life they come down. 100%. Your live shows are great. Uh, what's happening on the live front? Yeah, well, we are last... Last yeah, Saturday. You go, you go. Oh, yeah. Last Saturday, we had a ripper night. We had a, a birthday bash for Connor and his brother. They, we called it Connor and Cameron's 50th birthday bash, and it was phenomenal. We, yeah. we had two openers, Leah and Catherine. Both those girls performed incredibly, and then we got up and played a set, and it was just it was jamming. It if you was jump j- on our socials and have yeah. a look at some posts that we've done, we've done a bit of a recap, and we actually performed with a 10-piece band. So it was epic, and it was loud, and it was good. And we had it filmed, and we had it. Um, we had a photographer there as well, Benny Greggs from BG Community, doing his great work, and... Now we're about to start pitching and hitting the festival scene. I yeah. think that's going to be our next step. Doing some openers as well. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's really good. And just quickly, the album, when's it dropping? We're aiming for March next year. Aiming. March. It was the end of this year, but we've decided, as all musicians change their mind every few days, we're <laughs> yeah. going to actually add another three tracks to the album because we don't feel like it yet uh, explains our story of the last 10 years completely. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've done some rework and we've done some, just some thinking and some stewing on the stuff that we've got going on and we think it's better to, to do it next year and add these new tracks. Yeah. We've got one, be- one more single out in August, August, September, and at the end of the year, we're actually releasing our first dance track. Yeah. So wow. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you guys do have a vault of material uh, and I can sense a follow-up album. I know you guys say, oh, yeah, we'll do our second in 10 years' time. I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if you could stop us. I, I don't know. There could be a snowball effect after next year. We don't know. Well, the but, snowball effect has still not ended. Yeah, we're, still going, <laughs> we're going so from the, good. Yeah, the tonight snowball is still going. <laughs> Mr. Co, great to see you. Thanks for dropping Thank into 3CR. So Thank you, man. Thank Cheers. you, mate. Some call me on it, some name is Slim. 
Rex there, the groover you are, and in your face on 3CR with James. I am joined by director Stephen Mitchell-Wright to chat about Away, which is happening real soon at TheatreWorks. Ah, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, James. It's a classic Australian play. Tell us all about Away. Oh, it's, it's an epic Australian play. It, uh, we've got so much in it. There's a story of three families, dancing, song. It's nostalgic. It's also current. It's quite heartbreaking, but at the moment we're at a point in rehearsals where it's also absolutely hilarious. So it's a big mix of things. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it was written in a very heteronormative era in Australia. What do you bring to it as a queer director? I imagine you can't resist putting a queer touch to it. Well, it was written in the 80s and it was written by a queer man. Um, so there's definitely queer threads through the work already. Um I I wouldn't say that this work is loudly and proudly queer, but there is a lot of undercurrents and queer tones throughout the work. And I think my aesthetic within any work brings quite a, a, a queer lens through which I create imagery and process character and style and rhythm. Um, yeah, I think this work is really rich for queer people. The characters are quite archetypal and bold and brazen, and there's a lot in there for people of all different walks of life, I think. Wow. Just when you describe that, I can I can sense that your background in physical theatre techniques must be kind of making it a bit of a, a, bit of a haven for you as a director. Um, yeah, well, I trained. My formative years were spent in physical theatre. It's not really a term I use anymore, but my my methodology is very much in the body and my, my sense of characterization. I'm not interested in in works that are domestic in scale. So we're definitely playing with larger than life, um, really bold Australian characters within the work. And we, we do a lot of work in the rehearsal room on, on physicalization and characterization and, and the rhythm and the, and the way we sculpt the space to tell this story as well. What makes the characters, in a way, so bold? Well, I think by nature, I think Australian people, we are pretty 
big characters. Um, when I was coming to this work, I think Michael Gow, the playwright, he's, he's started the work with a, a high school production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and then it goes into the story of the, of the characters. And the, he's intentionally woven some Mendelssohn through the piece, and there's a magical storm in the piece as well. I think he's very intentionally left it uh, heightened in, in, in style, and it, it borrows from the Shakespearean structure quite heavily. And so I wanted to make sure that the characters matched that and that they never dropped down into like, domestic realism. And when I was preparing for this work, I was watching a lot of different Australian cinema just to kind of give myself some litmus tests. And I hit kind of Muriel's Wedding, Strictly Ballroom, and... Um, Priscilla Queen of the Desert and a lot of the supporting characters in that or the older actors in that felt right to me like the mum in Strictly Ballroom and, and Barry Fife who teaches them the Bogo Pogo and Muriel's Wedding all of the all, nearly all of the actors in Muriel's Wedding I was like there's something about that nature of performance that kind of big characterization that really interested me and made me lean into this work in a particular way have you had discussions with Michael Gow about your version of his production, of his play? I actually haven't spoken to Michael. I, Michael and I do know each other. Michael was very supportive of me. I'm originally from Queensland, and I was kind of cutting my teeth as a director while Michael was the artistic director of TTC. Um, and he was always very supportive of my work. And even when I was a really baby, very experimental, kind of balls-to-the-wall kind of director, he was always supportive of the risks I took. So I'm not sure if Michael's going to see it. He's given us permission to do it. He knows that I was directing. So, um, yeah, I haven't spoken directly to him about my vision, though. Wow, I'm surprised to hear that. Why Why haven't you spoken? I just haven't reached out to him. Um, Michael has a lot... This play is one of the most produced plays in Australia. And I'm sure Michael doesn't want every director who's directing the work talking to him about the text. Um, so it just hasn't it just hasn't happened yet, and I haven't felt the need to. If I needed clarification on stuff, or if I wanted his thoughts on stuff, or if I wanted to go to him with, say, Michael, may I cut this line, or may I speak this, then absolutely we'd talk, but it just hasn't happened yet. You've got a great cast in a way. Tell us all about them. Yeah, there's a wonderful cast. It's a big cast. So we've got a senior ensemble, and we have a junior ensemble within the work. The junior ensemble are made up from a group of early career actors from Collart, the part of our partnership with Theatre Works. So they're the chorus in the work, they're the fairies, they're a whole bunch of transformative roles within the work. And then we have a lot of adult actors in the team as well, not that the junior ensemble are adults, but older adult actors. Um, we have Yopu, we have Rupert, we have Stephanie, Bailey, Justin, Eleanor, Linda, Kate and Stephen. And they make up the adult cast. So all up we have 18 actors on stage. Um... They're all wonderful. They're all really rich performers. They all bring different methodologies and different ways of thinking and working to the floor. And uh, we've been having a really wonderful time in rehearsals. Yeah, I really sense that. And it is a great cast. And it is a big cast. Where are you at in the rehearsal process at the moment? We're literally right now on a break in the middle of a stumble through. Uh, so for those that don't know that are listening, a stumble through is not quite a full run. It's where we expect there to be some clunks. It's when we expect the actors to still be calling for lines sometimes. And um, I don't let the actors stop. Like if a mistake happens at this point, they have to solve it. But it's kind of the it's kind of the test drive. It's when we put everything together. We've rehearsed the scene. We know how the scenes theoretically move into each other, and it's the first time you push it through. What has surprised you the most, you know, uh, as you've embarked on this process with Away? I mean, as you said before, it's one of the most produced plays in the country. But what has surprised you? Because you've got a rich history and you're bringing a, a, a different lens to it, I think. So what, what's come up that, that's kind of taken you by surprise? I think both how, how upsetting the work is. Uh, it, it really is written with a lot of tragic notes throughout it, and how how upsetting and how heavy-hitting it is early on. Like, Act 2 is just full of emotional gut punches. Um, but at the same time, how hilarious it is. It's actually really, really funny. Um, I'm finding myself laughing a lot in rehearsals, and 
I'm finding myself moved in unexpected ways, which I think is what I really love in theatre. When like, you'll read something the first time and you go, okay, that, that, that part's going to be heartbreaking and that part's going to be a bit funny. And then when you put it up on the floor, it begins to evolve and you find yourself laughing where you thought you might have cried and you find yourself chuckling at something that's really dark. And you, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's such a rich piece. And I really do think it's one of Australia's masterpieces of writing. I mean, you've really, you know, hit on, I think, you know, one of the themes of queerness, especially in the 80s and 90s, it was such a, you know, gut-wrenching emotional time for the community. Uh, but there was also so much black humour as well. Do you think that kind of, you know, that's a, a kind of a tacit kind of, you know, exploration of that from Michael Gale? Yeah, I think I think that's part of the queer vernacular. Um for us, I think within the queer community, within queer arts community, the line between comedy and tragedy is very thin. Uh, and the line between absurdity and truth is very thin. Um, and I think that's explored in the work. And I think if I, I, I suspect when we finish the work, or that I will be shining a light on some of those moments a little bit more firmly than some other productions that I may have seen. Um, but yeah, I definitely do think that's an innate queer lens and a queer paradigm that we view the world through. I sense a real kind of, you know, commitment to, you know, honouring, I guess, queer voices and queer lenses and queer perspectives in this play, especially in the current era that we're living in, where the community is having to fight so hard. I mean, as a queer director, it would kind of be, it would be very hard not, I think, to want to embrace queerness with this production. Yeah, I think for me, queerness is a lot of things. Queerness is a way of working. Queerness is a way of building community. Queerness is a way of putting people first. Queerness is a way of uh, amplifying voices. Um, and I think those those definitions of queerness are all through the work and all through the process. I don't think to the untrained eye, necessarily, the work will read particularly queer. And by that, I mean to a non-queer person, I don't think the work will read particularly queer. But I think for queer people, we see stuff that other people don't. And same when I read the script, I think I read stuff in it that I don't think a heterosexual director would read. And I think that's kind of interesting. It's kind of, it's not x-ray goggles, but it's definitely, definitely a sideways glance at something and seeing it in a different light to other people. It sounds like you've really refreshed this play. Yeah, well, I hope so. I think that if we if we can, if we're not refreshing refreshing a classic or we're not bringing something new or at least something deeper or something different or something unique, then I don't think there's any point in revisiting the canon. Tell us the backstory to what led you to be directing this play. Uh, the backstory to this piece that's um, actually not particularly exciting. Um, within my role at Theatreworks, we program a number of larger pieces um, that Theatre Works produces and I said I'd like to do something that has a bit of scale to it, that has a bit of people behind it and I'd like to tackle something Australian because uh, in my decent sized career I have only directed one Australian play before that in terms of already existing published plays um, and that was a short piece by Daniel Keane and I went, I would like to go at an Australian classic and see what that means to me as an artist. And uh, Away was one of the ones on my bedside table and Away was the one that got picked. I mean, you have had a distinguished career. You've taught at Harvard in the US and I also read that you've taught at the Moscow Theatre Company. Tell us about that. Um, so the Moscow Arts Theatre and Harvard actually have a partnership with their Masters Acting Program. So I taught for the Moscow Art Theatre, but not in Moscow. It's a bit of, bit of a, a tricky one to get your head around. But so, yeah, the, the Masters program, the Masters Acting program is co-hosted by Harvard and Moscow Art Theatre. 
Wow. So you've really, you've really obviously got a lot to give to, to, to young actors and, and also directors as well. Um, how would you describe your directing style? I mean, you've got a physical kind of background, but you've also got a background uh, in, in the Suzuki method. Tell us what that is. Um, well, the Suzuki method is a highly physical training form that came out of Japan by a director called Tadashi Suzuki. Um, the short version of that is Suzuki got sick of seeing the influence of cinema on stage actors and created a methodology to get actors back in their body and working with a very high level of energy fit for the stage. Um, So it's a very physical way of manipulating the body and getting energy and breath into a much more heightened state than is required for TV or or film. Um, But my methodology is very varied. Um, I try to... I try to adapt my methodology for the work that I'm making. Yeah. So how would you how would you say you've adapted it for a way? Um, it's really hard to articulate that when you're in the middle of it. Uh, I think there is a a playfulness and a game based play method that I'm, I'm I've employed in this process to make sure that there is a light, lighter community feel even in the darkness of this play and that there is there is a kitschness that is not artificial. It's not added on top of it, but that there is a, a genuine uh, a building of a world that we see the mechanism behind. That's quite difficult to describe, but, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really light and playful room um, kind of feels like when you walk in the room you could be at a campsite uh, with a community Wow it sounds stunning, it sounds warm and it sounds like you're really reinvigorating Michael Gow's away, Stephen Mitchell Wright the director, thank you so much for joining me and yeah, people can see your production of Away at Theatreworks in St Kilda, July 8 to 22nd, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR Thanks very much. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.